Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Great to be with you today. Richard Sandemir is going to join us on the show today. The book, Pride of the Yankees. It's about the making of the movie. What's fact? How it came about? Where was their artistic license? Our show here is two hours of artistic license every day. (laughs) Great to be with you, Sean. Great to be with you. Feelings mutual, sir. Thank you. Afternoon. After the disheartening news yesterday, about three of our top five shows on the podcast include my brother. I mean, so, I mean, I think he's going to get his own show when it's all said and done. You might be working, you and I might be working for him. Spinoff. <laughs> Maybe a spinoff, yeah. Spinoff, you know, it's like like Rhoda. <laughs> so, <laughs> Hard work, doing- hard working man running the metal shop, and a deep love right. for, and passion for sports. That's right. <laughs> uh, so you've been uh, doubling up working on on the mark. Yes, last and couple you, of mornings. You, yes, you texted me. I think it was this morning, mm-hmm. and they have the talk show bozo of the day. They just premiered that this morning. Lawrence received a strike of inspiration from somewhere. What's next? The quote of the day instead of the play-by-play of the day? <laughs> Although it was funny when when Mark said talk show bozo of the day, <laughs> right over for him is Joe McGranahan. He was probably smiling pretty. <laughs> uh, yeah, he goes. I'm not taking turns with that concept. You can be the talk show bozo every day. <laughs> oh. See, that's the difference. There's there's a level of cruelty on that show. It just it's cruel, I'm telling you. It's cruel. I mean, you would never say that to me. Never. No. In talking to some of your friends, I guess you think it all the time. No. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh the the Yankees uh, won last night. Oh, excuse me, lost last night. But Aaron Judge homered, and I was we talked about the play by play call of the day. Now it's not going to be our call because we're going to go with uh, Giancarlo Stanton and Dave Van Horn's call. Uh, and <laughs> I guess he hits the home run out. Judge does, and John Sterling. Uh, that's, Says a series of things, and one of them is "Here comes the judge," and like it's like a real. It says like three different ways about a judge in the call, and then at the end he says, "And the Yankees are losing five to two. Oh my God, <laughs> okay, end up losing seven to six. 
last night. Phillies lost to Garrett Cole and the Pirates last night. What? There's one more game in the series, right? It's a four-game series. Yes, uh, a rare 5.30 airtime this afternoon for the warm-up here yeah. on WKOK. So we'll have a shortened late-day news roundup with Chris Elio, and uh, first pitch tonight will be at 6.05. Be, uh, Chad Cool and Jeremy Hellickson tonight. Uh, scores right now look like this. The Tigers lead the Giants 5-2 to two in the bottom of the 7th. Cardinals lead the Marlins 3-2 top of the 5th. Brewers have jumped out to a 5 nothing lead on the Cubs. In the top of the 3rd, the Reds and Rockies at Coors are scoreless in the top of the 1st. And they're playing the Greenbrier uh, Classic. Davis Love the 3rd, 7 under par. David Lingmurth at 600, Graham Dillette at 600. Now, that's important for this reason. You know the story of the Greenbrier? Not familiar with it right off the top. They couldn't play the tournament last year. They had terrible, terrible floods in White Sulphur Spring, West Virginia, and the surrounding area. I mean, terrible floods. I mean, awful Death, destruction, uh, just of the golf course. I mean, the golf course was ripped apart by this. And they were going out and surveying damage on the golf course, and they found bodies. I mean, it was, it was awful. What happened there was awful. An incredible natural disaster. So, of course, they didn't play the tournament last year. And you have the people of that area trying to rebuild their lives, rebuild their homes, rebuild their businesses. And part of the rebuilding, which then became symbolic of the area, was rebuilding this golf course, which they have. I guess they've done a great job with it. But that's the significance of the Greenbrier. And where they're playing at the, the old white course of the TPC course there. So that's, uh, you know, that's that's what they're going to do. I mean, that's what they're doing. They, they, and that area became symbolic. That golf course, symbolic for the whole area, being on the comeback trail. Also, Bones Mackay got a job. You're going to ask, well, he's not going to caddy for Phil Mickelson after 25 years, so who's he going to caddy for now? I have the answer. He's going to Golf Channel and NBC as an on-course commentator. He's not going to caddy for anybody. He's going to do a few tournaments starting with the British Open, and then he is going to get a full-time schedule next year. Then there's this one. Angel Hernandez sued Major League Baseball this week alleging racial discrimination. It turns out he's actually one of the umpires for the All-Star game. I don't think that helps the case. Hernandez will be at first base. The crew is headed by Joe West, who's working his third All-Star game. Mark Carlson will work second, Chris Conroy third, Manny Gonzalez in left, and Mike Eastbrook will be in right. The replay umpires, Doug Eddings. So, 
Angel Hernandez was named to the All-Star game. should be pointed out that the assignments in Major League Baseball for umpires are not done on grades. Because they say they're all equal. Okay. What bothers me about that is I'll tell you, there's one area where they are not equal, and that's balls and strikes. Some are just better than others. And I'm telling you right now, in the postseason, to me, you pick out, especially let's take the World Series, you pick out seven guys who are great at balls and strikes, and those are the seven guys that get to call it balls and strikes. So. That's an area where they're not equal. On balls and strikes? No. But it's the way it is. So the union says they're equal. They're equal. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. I uh, had a chance now the last two nights to watch Adam Hazley, the Phillies' first-round pick. Well, on this level, he's really, really good. He is really, really good. Let me tell you what I like about him. I think he has a good, quick bat. I haven't seen him hit for power yet, but he did hit for some power at Virginia. Excellent speed. Tracks the ball really well. Breaks on the ball really well. When he runs the bases, he gets a break right away off the base. And he can hit. He can hit. I guess I haven't seen him hit for power yet, but he can hit. So far, he's shown shown to be a line drive gap hitter. And again, I have not seen him put one really up in the air yet. But he's an, also an excellent athlete. I know the Phillies gave him a five point one million dollars signing bonus. The but and he was also an excellent pitcher. At Virginia. I believe he ended up being ninth in America, ninth in the NCAA in ERA. So the guy's a really good athlete. But the Phillies obviously want him to concentrate on being a center fielder. And when Hazley played for Team USA internationally, he was a center fielder. So as a longtime fan of the Red Sox, I'll, I'll throw this your way. Uh, Crosscutters manager Pat Borders said uh, that Hazley controls the bat head really well. He can go the other way just as easily as he pulls it. He's not a Wade Boggs type hitter, but he has that kind of bat control. Um, In the ability to use the entire field, yes. Boggs could drive the ball to the gaps. And one area where Boggs was a great hitter, which I can't tell yet with Hazley, Boggs was a great two-strike hitter. So I can see what he's talking about with Wade Boggs in terms of his back control. Because Hazley, 
I mean, you know, what is the area where if you were charting his hits, where would they be? Well, it would be from this right field line to the left field line. He uses the entire field. He's a very hard guy to defense. You have to defend him evenly, which would be Wade Boggs. He has the back control of Wade Boggs. One thing I haven't seen yet, which I'm sure Pat has seen in batting practice, because I haven't seen batting practice either, is the ability to drive the ball. Now, Hazley may not have had a pitch yet to drive. I want to be fair about it. I've only seen him for two games. But I can see what he's talking about. I can see what he's talking about, that Hazley is that kind of bat control. I agree with that. Boggs was a master at using his back control, and he was he could use the left field wall. He could get doubles off the left field wall. <laughs> um, again, I've seen Hazley too, but you can you can see it. You can see, and you know that he does have that kind of back control. I agree with that. We get a chance to see him tonight, and if he's still with them, I'll see them, see him in another two weeks. Yeah, I don't know what the Phillies want to do with him. I don't know how quickly they want to move him. We'll see. I don't know, but you can see that he has all those tools, and as a, as an outfielder. I'm going to assume, I haven't really seen it yet, you're going to assume he has a good arm. I mean, the guy, the guy was a good pitcher. But I watched him make a break on a ball on Tuesday. A sinking line drive in right center field. And he got to it, dove, and made the catch. It was a great route, and he showed great explosiveness and the ability to get to the ball. All right. We'll come back with more in a moment on News Radio 1070 WKOK, brought to you by our good friends at Sunbury Motors. Great to have you with us on the show today, brought to you by Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury, Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Interesting. Uh, what, I guess what the suits off on vacation this week, right? Correct. I talked to management, and I said, and they said, you know, the odd thing is, we've seen no difference in the sales from last week. Kind of thought that was an interesting revelation. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's waiting for the statistical. waiting for the midsummer spike. We're here waiting for it. <laughs> You wait. I'll do so. I'll do other things. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we have an analytics guy named Matt, who is an awesome guy, who works in the press box. And Matt does a, will send me notes all the time during a broadcast. Terrific stuff. Now, is this for the spikes or for footballs? For the spikes. Okay. Now, yesterday we had Tim, or what, uh, Friday, well, we had Tim Kirkshaw on the show, right? Uh, this past Monday. Yep. Monday. Monday with Tim Kirkshaw on the show. Outstanding chat with you and him. So he's listening. Listen to the show. He said, and I asked him what's valuable to him 
in analytics, what's not? And he said, what's not is it would be spin rate and exit velocities. I keep hearing spin rate, exit velocity, whatever. Look, the ball goes over the fence, it's a home run. I really don't care how it got out of there. <laughs> so I'm doing the broadcast last night. You mentioned spin rate. And this kid takes a curveball and drops it in. I said, you know, I wonder what the spin rate was on that. It seemed <laughs> awfully impressive. <laughs> and, then, and then a guy hit a foul ball. It may have been Hazley. Hit a foul ball, one of those lazy high and just drifts toward the seats and out of play. I said, I wonder what the exit velocity was on that. <laughs> <laughs> when, I 50, tweeted, when, I, when, 60, when I tweeted out the link to the podcast on Monday, I should have used hashtag spin rate, <laughs> hashtag exit velocity. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the last time we saw really impressive exit velocity was when the suit was, was with us and there was a buffet outside. <laughs> yeah, that's exit velocity. <laughs> Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Richard Sandemir in the next half hour. Really good book. Great read. Pride of the Yankees. Lou Gehrig, Gary Cooper, and the making of a classic. You want to talk about meticulous research. But that's always been Richard Sandemir's M.O. anyway. Time now for This Day in Sports History. And on this day in sports history, we started in 1933, where the first All-Star game was held at Old Comiskey Park in Chicago. The American League beat the National League 4-2. to And the man that hit the first All-Star game home run, Babe Ruth. 1957, Althea Gibson won Wimbledon Women's Singles title, the first black athlete to win the event. 1983, on the 50th anniversary of the first All-Star game, they brought the game back justifiably to Comiskey Park in Chicago. And Fred Lynn, then of the California A's, hit the first ever Grand Slam in the history of the All-Star game, and the American League beat the National League 13-3. 1985, Martina Navratilova won her fourth consecutive women's singles title. 1995, the prosecution rested its case at the O.J. Simpson murder trial. 1996, Steffi Groff won her seventh Wimbledon title. 2000, a jury awarded former NHL player Tony Twist $24 million for the unconsented use of his name in the comic book Spawn and the HBO co- uh, cartoon series. Co-defendant HBO settled with Twist out of court for an undisclosed amount of money. We didn't think you'd notice. <laughs> but they did, as a matter of fact. All right, we have Richard Sandemir coming up in the next half hour. Here's another author for you. And his name is Jarrett Van Meter. He wrote a book about Kentucky high school basketball. There's still one of only a couple tournaments remaining where there's one champion in the state. Jarrett, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. 
It's interesting. Every time I make trips to Indiana now, they lament losing the one champion tournament. I mean, they lament it. Is that a strong lesson for Kentucky to keep going with a one champion tournament? Absolutely. I think that for a while, Indiana was the mecca of high school hoops in, in America with Hoosiers and everything else. And like you said, up until 1998, they had a single champion format. And then they switched to four classes, which was a big deal up there. And then when that happened, Kentucky kind of slid into the, the spotlight as being one of only two states left, along with Delaware, that has uh, a single state championship format still. So there's only two states remaining that do that. And Delaware, I'm sure the, the basketball there is great, but it's, it's Kentucky's kind of considers itself on, in the same uh, vein as Indiana as far as the quality of hoops here goes. So uh, everyone here really cherishes it and loves the fact that we're kind of the place to go if you want to see the hysteria that goes with a one champion format and our state tournament is called the Sweet 16 it's held every year in Rupp Arena which is where the University of Kentucky Wildcats play and it's a five day extravaganza of high school basketball and it's something that everybody here really loves and it brings in a lot of people from other states as well Yep, I did a game once at Rupp it was not the result you would think Penn State won the game um, <laughs> the uh, when you look at this tournament, you decide to take three schools, and Kentucky is a rather diverse state. Uh, you have private schools, you've got the, the horse industry, you've got the coal industry. It's a diverse state. How important was it to, for you to pick the three schools that you did based on diversity in the state? You nailed it when you said that it's a it's a diverse state, both culturally and geographically. We have the mountains in the east. And then when you go out west towards the western tip of the state, towards Missouri and out there, it turns into more flat agricultural land. Uh, in the center of the state, we had the bluegrass region, which is the horses and the bourbon and, and all of that. And then in the north, it's kind of just suburbia. It's, it's We think of northern Kentucky as all uh, basically one giant suburb of Cincinnati, which sits on the Ohio-Kentucky border. And then we have Lexington and Louisville. So there's just all sorts of different places within the state, and with that comes a whole whole bunch of different uh, cultures. And so that that was very important to me to kind of pick three schools that represented three very different parts of this state. Uh, Covington Catholic was a, a private school, the only one of the three that I chose that was a private school. It was up in the northern part of Kentucky that I mentioned, and you could actually see the Cincinnati skyline from the Covington Catholic yeah. parking lot. Yeah, that's up, uh, that's, that's up, near, up near the airport, as a matter of fact, right? Exactly, yep. Yeah. Uh, it, it might be the closest high school in the in the nation to the airport, actually, right. but it, uh, don't quote me on that, but it, it's very, very, very close to there. And um, Taylor County was out in western Kentucky with the farmland and, mm -hmm. and the the rolling hills and they they had an incredibly talented roster the year I was following them several Division One caliber players most notably Quentin Gooden who this past year as a freshman led Xavier to the Elite Eight in the NCAA tournament as the starting guard as a freshman and then Clay County was the Mountain team they were down there in the hills of Appalachia uh, a very a pretty poor uh, former mining community a lot of the coal jobs have actually dried up there mm. and as a result there's not uh there's not many outlets for uh for income there and it's uh it's 
it's it's a it's a town that's seen better days that they even through it all going back decades it's a it's a one of the best basketball traditions in the entire nation from a high school standpoint and they've set state records and national records with a bunch of uh just kind of scrappy mining kids so they're all very different and that was very much uh at the at the core of what my selection process when I went about trying to choose three teams. All three would have been considered favorites in that particular year that you followed them. Uh, but not one of the three ended up winning. What does that tell you about the, the about the, the one uh, state champion? In my opinion, it speaks to the beauty of it because you, Taylor County, the team I mentioned out in Western Kentucky, they were the unanimous number one team in the state year I followed them, the Lexington paper, the Louisville paper, all the newspaper and, and media outlets had them number one. They had, like I said, the most talent on one roster we've seen in this state in a while. And then they kind of faltered out of the gate, actually. They shocked a lot of people by starting only 7-7, seven and seven, but then rebounded and was, were able to make it to the state tournament at Rupp that I mentioned, but uh, ultimately fell there. And uh, the fact that more often than not, what I tell people is that the schools from big city or uh, yeah, like the bigger metropolitan areas, like Louisville and Lexington, schools from there will usually win, and that's just the, the way it works out. But every so often, a team comes along and shocks everybody. I mentioned Clay County, one of the teams I follow. They won a state championship back in 1987. It's their only state championship, but it's something that they cling to and it's still very much at the center of their uh, cultural identity down there and that happened all the way back in 1987 so you just never know who's going to come along and win it and uh, shock the world and uh, it happens just often enough that the little guy wins that we've uh, kept our state tournament as it is because it, it does happen and when it does it makes it all the more special but there's it makes it really difficult to pick a winner and I like just like you mentioned another part of what I was looking for when I was choosing the three teams is I wanted teams that had a good shot of winning and all three of those teams uh, Covington Catholic spent most of the season actually ranked number one in the state that year and many people had pegged them by the midway point of the season to win the whole thing and they got upset so you just never know And uh, but that's what makes it fun to me Obviously, you tried to go into this with an open mind about it, uh, but were there a couple things along the way that surprised you in, in chronicling these three teams? I was simply surprised by uh, how much it still matters in a lot of these small towns. Mm -hmm. uh, I I grew up in Lexington, which is the second biggest city in the state. It's not a huge city by any means, but it's about 300,000, and then Louisville, uh, is about an hour away. And if you go to high school games in those cities, uh, there's not many people in the in the bleachers. We've got the Kentucky Wildcats here. They have the Louisville Cardinals over there. Right. We're more we're more college sports towns. But then when you go to down to Clay County or Taylor County, and even up to Covington Catholic places that are uh, the the high school games are the big show in town. And that was really refreshing to see that that people still close up shops and they, they go to the high school games and it's a big deal. They, the little kids go to the games with uh, jerseys of like the Clay County Tigers. I saw a bunch of kids that, <laughs> at all the games with uh, na names of different Clay County Tigers on the back of their jerseys. And In those small towns, they, they obviously everyone in, the, in this state loves the Wildcats and some people love the Cardinals, but 
everyone usually outside of Lexington and Louisville grows up dreaming of playing for their local high school team, making it to Rupp Arena, playing in front of their entire town in Rupp Arena. Uh, so it was it was really refreshing uh, for me as a Lexington guy where the, the big thing in town is the Kentucky Wildcats to see that high school basketball is still front and center in a lot of these smaller communities. And for those who don't know, the University of Kentucky rents Rupp Arena. Uh, Rupp Arena is a city-owned facility in Lexington. Correct. And when you get, when they finally get to this point in the Sweet 16, Jared, describe the atmosphere in Rupp Arena with so many distinct personalities in there. It is incredible. I I had been to ga- going to games in Rupp Arena my entire life. Uh, I live only a couple blocks away. And Taylor County was actually the only one of my three teams that was able to reach the Sweet 16. And in doing so, they, you know, they fulfilled a lot of those kids' dreams, but uh, I'd be lying if I said they didn't also fulfill a dream of mine. I got to go with them and go into the underbelly of Rupp Arena <laughs> and into, into the locker rooms. Uh, I got to go out, storm out of the tunnel onto the court with them and, uh, it gives me chills just thinking about it. It's, it's a massive venue, 24,000 capacity. Uh, and like I said, with these small towns, they bring the whole town down. And Taylor County had almost half of Rupp Arena filled up with black and red dressed people and with the cardinal colors. And it was just incredible. And it's it's difficult from an actual basketball perspective when actually because it's about 10 feet longer than a high school court and plus there's all that space behind the glass backboard which can throw some shooters off. So from a basketball standpoint, it takes a game or two for the players to really settle in and get used to. But the adrenaline is just so – it's off the charts, and it's so fun for the kids uh, because, like I said, we don't have a professional team in this state. And uh, outside of the high school teams, the Cardinals and the Cats, so the, those are the things that the kids look up to. And Rupp Arena is just about all they know as far as – the uh, inc- the meccas of sport go so they uh, it's it's a great experience and it was something that I'll remember forever as I'm sure they will too. Jared, an absolute pleasure, uh, fascinating book. Thank you so much for joining us today and giving us some insight. Thank you guys, I really appreciate it. Jared Van Meter, wrote a book about the uh, Kentucky high school basketball, one of the only two states, along with Delaware, where there's one high school basketball champion. In this state now, there are six different divisions. We'll come back with more in a moment on News Radio 1070 WKOK. When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Subway Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Merth family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle is worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC Way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC Way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC Way. The SMC Way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years. 
Great to have you with us. Uh, Richard Sandemir is going to join us in the next half hour to discuss his book, The Pride of the Yankees, Lou Gehrig, Gary Cooper, and the Making of a Classic. Uh, The research in this is meticulous. And uh, he did a wonderful job with it. All the way from concept to filming, to how it turned out. Uh, And it turned out that Pride of the Yankees was Goldwyn's highest grossing film to date. It was a hit the day it opened. Variety called it the sensation of the week. It grossed $30,000 in the first seven days at the Astor Theater in New York, a new high at the theater. Another 90000 in receipts were collected at the 40 other New York area theaters where Pride was shown. In Los Angeles, the first night take was $5,000. All of it was donated to the Naval Aid Auxiliary. Another L.A. theater came in at $38,000. San Francisco at the Golden Gate Theater, $31,000. It's interesting, when Gary Cooper went overseas to perform I, I probably want to say it was USO tours uh, at a stop along the way at Port Moresby and suddenly a soldier shouted out a request and the request was, quote, Hey, Coop, how about Lou Gehrig's farewell speech to the Yankees? The soldiers had recently seen the pride of the Yankees were moved by the uh, selfless speech of a dying man. And he, Cooper recalls that all of a sudden the soldiers started shouting in unison they wanted the farewell speech. And he said, Give me a minute to get it straight. I don't want to leave anything out. So he left the stage, jotted down some notes, and came back out. Now, it had been 18 months since he had delivered the speech on the soundstage. And as memorable as it was, I mean, let's face it, Cooper did not memorize it to the point where I'm going to do, you know, he, he memorized it for that day. He didn't memorize it for his life. And so he did it. And he decided that from that point on, whenever he'd be in front of the troops, he would make sure he had it ready to go and did it in every single stop that he made. And it got around to the other... I mean, they made a 24,000-mile trip. And he made the speech at every single one of them. including the uh, Theatre Royal in Sydney, Australia. So, it's uh, it's all interesting. It's all in this book. It's very interesting. As to how he put it all together. And... Uh, 
Cooper, the, I think his last public appearance was at the uh, Friars Club in Hollywood in, in early January. Uh, he died in 1961. He had cancer. And uh, I guess he gave the speech one more time there. So... And they always said that they always said that the runny joke during Cooper's career was that his greatest line was "Yup, yup, yup," because he had that kind of presence. Cooper said, choking up twice at the end of his speech. This is Cooper's last speech in 1961. If anyone asks me, am I the luckiest guy in the world? My answer is, yep. Richard Sandemir, next half hour, it's going to be fascinating. What a job he did in this book. Your station for news, weather, business, and CBS Sports Radio. News Radio 1070 WKOK Sunbury and on WKOK.com.